0: Good evening, welcome to this month's Bible Q&A. Um, this month we are uh, looking at Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Colossians. Um, how long, we, we, four hours, is that all right? Is that, yeah. Not cooking anything. Yeah, yeah. No, hopefully we won't be that long. Um, so I think we've got three questions on Job, three on Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and three on Colossians, so um, we'll see, we'll see how we go. Um Yeah, Chris, do you want to pray
1: for us?
2: Father, I want to um, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you that you've gathered us here together in your church to uh, draw close to each other, draw close to your word, and most importantly, draw close to you. And as always, we pray that the things we learn this evening would not be for our own gain, but they would be so that you would use us um, to bring glory to yourself and to um, help build your kingdom wherever we go. Um, So we pray your spirit would be with us and um, just open our eyes to things that you want to open our eyes to. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome.
0: All right, let's jump straight in, shall we? So question one is from Job. Um, oh If I can make it work. There we go. Job uh, 1, verses 6 to 7. Um, let's have a quick look. Let's jump there. Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 say this. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And the question is, who is Satan, and why is he there with God? What is he doing in the throne room of God with the angels, and what is all that about? So um, I'm going to do... I don't know how long this is going to take. I'm going to try and be as brief as possible, but I want to give you as much info as I can as well. We're going to jump around a little bit. So if I'm going too fast, wave at me and I'll slow down, all right? But um, I want to give a little bit of a theology of Satan, a little bit of a kind of who is he, where do we find him in the Bible? Um, Yeah, is that all right? And how did he end up here with the angels at the throne of God? So the first time that we come across this, this character, this Satan is Genesis in the garden. Yeah, yeah. And, and in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we meet this character, this crafty, more crafty than all the other beasts, um, and he's described as a serpent. Um, and I'd love it. T- turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. So, in the garden, there is this character called, well, the, the, the serpent or the snake, and we know that this character is Satan. Um, how, how do we get there? So, in, in chapter 6 of uh, Isaiah, verses 1 to 3, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah's got this vision, and the vision is the throne room of God. Okay, the Lord is on the throne. Uh, Verse 2, above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, um, seraphim, what are they? Um, they are angelic beings, okay? All right, they're in the throne room. One of their key roles appears to be worship of God, okay? They're there declaring the praise of God. And this is where we get the connection back to the garden because the Hebrew word for seraphim is, is a word that means fiery serpent. That's what seraphim means in the Hebrew. It means fiery serpent or fiery snake. Um, and so there's this idea that these angelic beings are some sort of serpent-y type angelic being. Okay, that, so and they're good. That they're good. All right, but but suddenly you start thinking, okay, well the one in the garden isn't good, but he's described as a serpent, and that's because he's probably one of these okay one of these seraphim okay hold, hang with me here um they these angels there are seraphim and cherubim and all kinds of different different um angelic beings that we get throughout the scriptures and often in the scriptures they're simply referred to by this hebrew word elohim now elohim is a word that we use to talk about god it, it means god uh but it doesn't it's not god's name in the hebrew okay we know that's yahweh elohim is like a category. So we here have a group of human beings. There are male and female human beings, there are all kinds of different, I won't go through and categorize all of you, but there are all kinds of different types of human beings, okay? Um, We all have different roles, we do different things, different jobs, but we are all in this one category of human beings and Elohim is a category word like that that means spiritual beings so god is spirit the bible tells us that right but so are the seraphim so are the cherubim so are various other characters throughout the bible they are Elohims which is why the bible says that god is the Elohim of Elohims he is the spiritual being the god of gods the spiritual being of spiritual beings are you with me so far okay um these Elohim, uh, throughout the Bible, these different angelic beings, they sometimes get referred to by another title. So we've got a number of titles so far. We, we've, got, we've got seraphim and cherubim, and we've, we've got Elohim, which is a category for all of them. But there's another title that gets used to describe these angelic beings. And that title is, is one that we find uh, in Job chapter 1 verse 6, in Job chapter 2 verse 1 in Job chapter 38, verse 7. Um, and that is this title, Sons of God. Sons of God. So the angelic beings sometimes get referred to as the sons of God. So God was in his throne room at the start of Job, and these angelic beings, in the NIV, I think it says the angels, but if I have a quick look, who, who else has got angels written in theirs? Yeah. Next to it, is there a little letter? And if you follow the little letter down, the sons of God. So the actual Hebrew says the sons of God came into the throne rooms. So it's been translated in some of our Bibles as the angels because we know that this is talking about the angelic beings, because in numerous places they're referred to as the sons of God. If you go to, we won't go and read it now, but if you go to 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 to 22, you'll see there that another prophet has a vision of heaven and talks about the sons of God being gathered uh, in the throne room, uh, making this decision with the Lord. Shall we do this? Shall we do that? And, and got one of them pipes up and says, yeah, I'll go and do this. And then Yahweh says... That's a great idea. You go and do that. But you get these um, angelic beings that are holding court with God, okay? And they're referred to as Elohim. They're referred to as sons of God. Sometimes we get their individual names like this is the seraphim and the cherubim and that kind of thing. Um, Everyone with me so far? Okay, great. Go back to page one of the Bible, Genesis chapter one. And um, I'm sure that Theologically, someone's going to disagree with me here, but that's okay. We've had a day of that. Um,
2: <laughs>
0: but um, but um, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, we, in, in a couple of places, we'll come to one of them later, but in a couple of places, we discover the sons of God or the Elohim or the, the court of God um, at work. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says this. Then God said, so in the, in the Hebrew, that is, then Elohim said, okay, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish. Hold on to that word rule, because we'll come back to that later. They may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds uh, in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground, So let us make mankind in our image. Now, watch the shift in language in the next verse. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Do you spot that shift? So in the Hebrew, it says that the Elohim, then said, let us make mankind in our image. A- again, the, it, the idea is that in this throne room of God are the angelic hosts that are all together with him, partnering with him in all the stuff that he's doing. They're like his courtiers, you know, kind of, and they're working for him and with him. And they say, let's make mankind in our image. And then God says that he made mankind in his image. So they feature, they're here. If, it, if this is talking about the Trinity, which some people would say it is, I don't believe it is, but if it was talking about the Trinity, firstly, we're we imposing New Testament kind of idea upon the Old Testament. The authors back then wouldn't have understood the Trinity in the way that we do now. Um, but secondly, if it was if it was God himself, the Trinity talking, then surely verse 27 would say, so then God made mankind in our image rather than in his image. Do you see? There's, there's, a, there's an intentional shift of language. So right here at the beginning, you get this court, these angelic beings that are working with God and for God to do all these things. Um, are you all with me? Okay, great. Now, this is, this is, this is where it all gets complex and interesting. <laughs> if it wasn't already. Um, in Genesis six, uh, we're not going to read the whole story, but in Genesis six. Um, we actually get the fall of some of these angelic beings. So we know in Genesis 3 that the the fall of mankind is recorded, but going on alongside this is is a a fall of the angelic beings. And so in Genesis 6, we get this idea that, um, I'll just read a couple of verses. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and and daughters were born to them, spot this language, the sons of God, okay, that is Hebrew for these angelic beings, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord says, my spirit will not contend. for And, and we get this whole thing where basically the sons of God, these angelic beings, went against what God had set in, set in place and there was this turning and this fall um, away from them. Now, who's heard of the Nephilim? Yeah, there's lots of theories around who the Nephilim are and what they are and all that kind of thing. But one of them goes like this. When the sons of God, these angelic beings, uh, had intercourse in some way, shape, or form with the daughters of mankind. Born to them was this race of, of giants, the, the Nephilim. Okay, now, what's really interesting, um, and I only recently discovered this because I used to think that Nephilim just meant giants. It doesn't mean giants at all. The Hebrew word for Nephilim literally means, uh, comes from the root word nafal, which means cast down, fallen away, or to fall. So here are these offspring of these Fallen sons of God, these fallen angels. Do you see, do you see that? Um, from the Nephilim, from these giants, came a guy named Nimrod. Nimrod was a mighty warrior, and Nimrod built a city called Babel, which is Babylon. So N- Nimrod starts building Babylon. Now, do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Okay. All the people gathered together in rebellion against God. What did God say? He said, go feel the earth, subdue it. But they were like, no, 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 we want to come together. We're safer in numbers. They rebel against God. They don't trust in him. They build this tower to reach up to the heavens. God comes down and he says, this ain't happening, and he scatters them, right? And so we get the scattering of the nations. Now, there's something really fascinating. Uh, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, sorry, I told you we were going to jump around a bit, and I promise we're getting to the point, all right? So, Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses looks back on the Babel situation and the scattering of the nations and all that kind of thing. And he's reflecting on that. And he says something really, really interesting. So, in, in Deuteronomy 32, verse starting in verse 7, Moses says this. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father, and he will tell you. Your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind. Okay, so what's he talking about here? The division of all mankind. He's talking about when God scattered the nations, okay, and gave them each their inheritance. And so he divided all mankind. He set up boundaries for the people according to the numbers. uh, according to the number of the sons of God some of your Bibles might say the sons of Israel. That's a personal interpretation of some of the translators, but in the Hebrew it implies the sons of God. So it's talking about there are these angelic beings that turned from God and there was the fall of the angelic beings and it coincided with the rebellion of mankind and God scattered mankind and put them under the rule of these angelic beings. Does that make sense? Um, Now we could get we could get caught up in all kinds of stuff here. Let me give you some, some stuff that the New Testament backs us up. If you go to 1 Peter. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, Peter references this very story in the Old Testament, the, the, the flood, the Noah story, which is what God ends up doing because mankind becomes so wicked and all that kind of thing. So this is that era of Genesis. And, and he says this... Um, yeah, 19 and 20, after being made alive, he, Jesus, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Um, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Okay, so Peter's referencing the Genesis Noah story and, and the, the mess that humanity got into. Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he, he goes back to this story again, and he says this, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, so there we go, angels sinned, angels turned from God, they missed the mark, and they fell from God's grace, okay, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in Chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Do you see how Peter is referencing back to that? And he's noting here that yes, mankind fell and stuff happened, but also there were these angelic beings that fell and that kind of turned away from God. Last one from the New Testament. Go to Jude, verse 6. It says, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So again, Jude makes reference to these angels that did not keep their heavenly position, but fell. So so what we've got here so far is that we know that there's a human race, there's an angelic spiritual race, and both the human race had a turning from God, and some of the angelic race seemed to turn from God, and there was a bit of a, a, uh, a combination of these two races mixing together, in, and this spiritual and human rebellion against God in the Bible, and we see that reflected in both the Old and New Testament. Isaiah chapter 14, um, you can go read it if you want, verses 12 to 15, they talk about one particular angelic being falling. And it talks about uh, this angelic being who was referred to as the bright morning star falling from grace, falling from uh, God because he wanted to take God's throne, all right? And so he falls. And this is where Satan comes into all of this, okay? So he is one of these angelic beings. Um, Bright morning star in the Hebrew, when it gets translated into the Septuagint in the Greek and then into the Latin, becomes the word Lucifer which means morning star, which is then where people think Satan gets his name from, Lucifer. And it's not a name. It's just a Latin Greek translation of the Hebrew morning star, which is a title for, for this particular being. He was one of the morning stars, one of the seraphim that burned like fire and declared the praises of God. We read in the Bible, don't we, that, that the stars declare his praises. Okay, He's one of these stars, um, which takes us back again to Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis chapter 1, in verses 14 to 18, you read there about God creating the sun, the moon, and the stars, and filling the, the day and light, day and night with sun, moon, and stars. But you read something really interesting that gives you a little bit of a clue that God isn't just talking about literal stars. He's talking about something spiritual. There's the physical creation, but there's also the spiritual creation story going alongside it. And, and it's this we read that the sun, moon, and stars were put into the day and the night to govern and to rule. Isn't that interesting? Because actual gas balls in the sky don't rule over anything. But spiritual beings have some sort of authority to rule. Do you you see that? Uh, So in Genesis, when God creates the sun, moon, and stars, yes, he physically created, but there's a spiritual creation story where he's creating the spiritual beings, before he creates human beings, and they've got some authority to rule over things and to work with him in governing his creation, which is then what we see them doing when they say, let's make mankind. And then what we see them doing in Job when they come into God's throne to kind of work stuff out and to, to rule with him. And in 1 Kings 22, when we see them working with God to come up with a plan for how to deal with this evil king that's done some terrible stuff. So these angelic beings have got authority to work with God and to rule. and, and Satan is is one of these angelic beings. He's one of the sons of God. He's one of the Elohim. Um, and he was supposed to be one of these people, one of these angelic beings that held court with God. But we know from the story of Scripture that he, from Isaiah and from uh, 1 Peter and Jude and from Genesis, that he is one of these angelic beings that fell from God's grace and, and turned against God. And so he becomes known in the Bible as The Satan is what the Hebrew calls him. He's not actually called Satan. He's the Satan. It's a title, which means uh, the adversary, the one who is always against. Does that make sense? And so Satan is one of these angelic beings simply that has fallen way, has turned from God, has rebelled against God and is constantly against him and against God's good plan and against God's good creation. Um, And so we see him wandering in and out of the courtroom of God, uh, the throne room of God throughout the scriptures at different times, because this is where he lives. He lives in the heavenly realm. And he uh, is one of these angelic beings that gets to come before God. And God says to him, where have you been? Well, I've been wandering around the earth and I've been because he's he's fallen, he's kind of in and out of all of this. He's looking to do anything he can to come against God. Does does that make sense? I know that was a really long winded way of explaining it all, but I feel like I wanted to give you guys the full story of who he is and how he fits into the, the bigger picture um, of the scriptures. Is there any quick follow up questions on that? Because I know that's quite a, a lot of stuff to take in. No? Good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I think if you look through scripture, you'll probably find some, off the top of my head I don't. One of the things I do know is the seraphim are described as these fiery serpents. Cherubim, despite the fact that we often picture them as these um, cute little cupid babies, are nothing like that at all because cherubim, cherubim were placed with swords of fire guarding guarding the uh, the, the gateway to Eden, after human beings were kind of kicked out of Eden, multiple faces, yeah, potentially four faces, and all kinds of different animal-looking parts to them, and yeah, so you can read through scriptures and find stuff. In fact, we see that when the cherubim rock up in several places, they are terrifying. <laughs> so the idea that they're these cute little cupid babies on Valentine's Day—that is not what cherubim are like at all. But yeah, so there is a really good. Bu- in fact. In fact, there's a really good Bible project. There's about five or six videos in a series called Spiritual Beings. Um, That's a really good one to watch on the Bible project if you want to learn more about about that. Yeah. Great. All right, then. So do we all understand who Satan is? Fantastic. (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. All right. Next question then. Question two um, is for Chris, I think. So Job 1 verse 8. Why would the Lord put Job forward to Satan? Why? Uh, was he teaching Job a lesson? Was God showing Satan that he was in control, and not Satan?
2: Go. So yeah, just the simple problem of evil, basically. The second question. Um, I thought we'd moved on from Job, so I was a bit bit disappointed when <laughs> when we got this one through. So, um, hmm, obviously, there are many, many theologians slash philosophers who have attempted. To answer this question, because because I think what it boils down to is, you know, why would God allow these things to happen? Why would God allow evil to happen? Why would God allow, as we know now, Satan, the Satan, to do the things that he did to Job? Um, and so, I thought to myself, I could uncover all those arguments and discussions, but um, I'm not going to do that, I'm just going to share three thoughts really, um, and they're not, they're not actually deeply theological, I don't think, but, um, but they're just things that, that sort of occurred to me. So anyway, just, just as a reminder, this obviously comes straight after um, the, the couple of verses that concerns Matt's question. So it follows on to say, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil, and then obviously Satan sort of responds by saying, you know, Job is only blameless and upright because you've put a hedge around him, you've given him all these lovely things, and I want to take that all away from him and basically test whether he carries on being a righteous man. Um, And so I think the first thing that occurred to me, which I don't really have an answer for, but but i suppose i'd never noticed before is that god actually presents job to satan before satan's even said anything do you know what i mean i feel like that's significant you know why would god and and it sort of lends itself to this this the question of did god do it to teach job a lesson you know um you know satan's not mentioned anything satan's not come in and started saying as far as we're aware you know, give me your best human being and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to them. And God's on the back foot thinking, oh, you better take Job then. God's quite proactive in presenting Job. And um, the thing I suppose that makes me wonder why is is that God is quite um, specific in presenting Job as his servant. And that's a moniker that is not given out left, right, and centre. You know, we think of Moses and we think of David when we think of the word servant. It's, you know, it's not a servant of God. God is describing him as his servant, and that that's. I mean, maybe at the time, Job didn't appreciate. We know he didn't appreciate it, but that that was that was something very intentional on God's part. You know, Satan was was. As as Matt said, had been creeping around the earth, would have been aware of Job anyway, and so God was saying, "Look, this is this is my servant, this is my chosen one." And Matt preached two, two or three weeks ago on this and the connections, obviously, between Job and Jesus. And I'm not going to go into that, but there's there's something there about God not teaching Job a lesson, but actually taking the man who was the most upright in his time, and and saying, "Look." You know, I know what you're here for, and this is this is this is the man who's going to withstand that. But I think, above all, reading this, the thing that I took away from it again is, and, and uh, sort of Matt just illustrated it there, is all of the stories that Matt t- talked through about separation. You know, when when the sons of God or the angelic beings or the Elohim. Re- revolted against god or some of them did they were separated from him when human beings obviously adam and eve decided to revolt against god they were separated when when the people built the tower at babel they were separated you know there there is something about that and then on the opposite hand you know much much later you have jesus saying what is eternal life it's to know the father you know i, I can't think of anything that is worse than being separated from God. And so I feel like um, the reason God does this, the reason God puts Job forward is because he knows, obviously in his infinite wisdom, that ultimately, yes, Job is gonna suffer, he's going to call out God, he's gonna, he's gonna, you know, say all sorts of about, but he's never going to give up on God. He's never going to Allow himself to be separated from God. If anything, it it really makes him want Him more, and so I think that um, I think that that God is fronted by Satan in that He's He's the angelic being who was created to be my servant, who was created to be in my presence, as Matt said, in my court, with all the rest of the angelic beings, working with me to you know. Create humanity to create the world to rule over creation, coming into my courtroom and telling me that the best of what I've made is only interested in being righteous because of all the great things that I've I've given Job. So I so I I I feel like God's rea- not reacting to that, but I feel like God has got a plan to ultimately shame Satan. You know, in that to say, do you know what? You've been separated. You know, you you chose to do what you did, but judging Job against your sort of criteria is is not going to work. I hope that makes sense. I feel like I probably need a few years to get that. Feel like somebody's probably putting that in 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 a good way. But um, the final thing, really, is I suppose that. And, and this is just going back to the question, is is it about teaching Job a lesson or is it about God showing Satan that he was in control? I think it's the latter because at the end of the day, you know, Job, as I said, is steadfast. You know, we we go through a whole series of complaints and, you know, his friends then sort of telling him that it was his fault and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, he he continues to be Steadfast, he continues to give his will over to God, and obviously God knew that when he put job forward so there's probably a lot more in it than that but but for me there's there's something about job being assigned as as his servant, something really quite special about that and um, and also that 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 Satan is judging job against his own criteria of separatedness, and God is responding by saying actually. This is about my criteria of togetherness in in my kingdom, and whilst you may have forgone that by your choices to revolt and rebel, Job is not going to do that. So I don't think it's it. Obviously, Job learns a lot through the process, and you know draws into near to God through the process. But I think it's about much more than that. So there's some ramblings.
0: That's cool, mate. Um, just while you were talking, I had a thought that popped into my mind. And I, I was looking at the verse before, verse 7, where it says that Satan answers. So he says, to the Lord says, Satan, where have you come from? And, and Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Um, and the question almost implies, like you were picking up that um, it's almost like God just offers up Job to Satan for no particular reason. But I, I remembered there's a verse that sounds a little bit like that. So if, if you look at, at 2 Chronicles 16, yeah, oh, nice, mate. 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, says this. Uh, for the eyes of the Lord, my, my version says, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. So some translations say the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth uh, to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Um, And interestingly, I just looked up the Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word for uh, to and fro, which is used here in Job, is the same word that is used in 2 Chronicles, is shuft, or something like that, is the Hebrew word. Okay, and it means to to, to roam, or to go to and fro. And so, we discover that God's eyes wander the earth, looking for those whose hearts are already fully committed to him, and he strengthens them, right? But then we also see that Satan is roaming to and fro throughout the Earth. And so the implication, I think here, is that Satan is intentionally he's come before God because I've been looking to see if I've been looking to see if there's anyone who's committed to you. And God says to him, "Well, have you considered Job?" God, knowing that Job's heart is already fully com- committed to him, and Satan says, "Yeah, but Job's only committed to you because you bless him." But we already know that God doesn't bless him to make him committed. God's been looking, and he sees that Job already is committed, and so provides blessing for him. But Satan's got it the other way around, like, oh, well, Job's only committed because you're blessing him. So God says, okay, well, you go and stop the blessing, you get, you know, kind of, and see. And actually, what we discover about Job is that it, his heart was always for God, even, even when he suffers, right? Like, I just thought, yeah, that... that I just thought, oh, that two and throw sounds like another verse. And um, I think probably they're connected. I think we see Satan doing what God does, but trying to kind of undo God's will God's heart and, and catch people out and what have you. So, yeah, cool. All right, awesome. Next question is for Den. Job 31, verses 26 to 28. Is it wrong to throw a kiss from your mouth? As in like... <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, just really looking that up. Um, I just want to just add a little note to Max's excellent um, thing. With the Nephilim, um, when Israel went into the Promised Land, uh, the giants were there in the Nephilim, and they destroyed the Nephilim, but they didn't destroy the Philistines and the Nephilim were still in the land of the Philistines. And when Goliath came along later on in the time of David, then they are offspring of those original Nephilim that were never killed by the Israelites when they went into the Promised Land because they were in the land of the Philistines. So Goliath lived in the land of the Philistines, and they were still Nephilim, uh, which had come down from the Nephilim, which was what Goliath was, Still in in the land, and what <clears throat> it says it in the Bible, it says that the Nephilim were on the earth. It don't just mean that they were in Israel; they were on the earth. So, all the earth that wasn't known uh, from the days of Israel, if you like, there were Nephilim. There were Nephilim on the earth, and a, a lot of skeletons have been found of the Nephilim, like nine, ten feet high. But you don't hear a lot about it because it messes with evolution. Okay. Okay, um, so we're just going to read um, from uh, 26 to 28 of Job 31. Uh, If I have regarded the sun in its radiance, or the moon moving in splendor, so that my heart was secretly enticed, and my my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then those also would be sins to be judged for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Now, when I read this question, I thought, I must have a secret admirer out there. (laughs) And then, and then I thought, I hope it's a man, not a woman. And then I read the verse, and I was disappointed. (laughs) So here we go. (laughs) It's a, it's a strange verse, isn't it? And um, I cut that out for the podcast. <laughs> uh, it's a strange verse, isn't it? Um, I mean, I've never come across anything like this before, and I was a bit surprised when I uh, I came across the question. And what, what it actually means is, going back to the days of Job, all around Job there is some worship. And I put Job... Um, near quite near to where Egypt is where there's a lot of sun worship going on because in Lamentations chapter four verse 20 it says it Edom is in the land of us. So that's placing it, give or take Sinai desert and um, maybe the Negev, that's placing it quite near Egypt. And people like Job would have known and would have seen around them the worship of the sun. Now out of all the gods it, people had and the Canaanite gods and all the rest of the gods that we know you could touch those gods so you could go up you could you could touch the uh, bell gods you could touch the Asherah poles you could touch anything you know, like when Rachel took her, uh, Laban's gods and she put them in her saddle bag, and they came away from Laban Jacob and Laban Then she physically had those gods in her saddle bag. but with the Sun You can't touch the sun, can you, It's for various reasons. So what the people used to do in those days, and is it particularly, um, you would understand, the Egyptian culture at the time, because they were really into sun gods. So what you did when you worship the sun was to either bend down on the floor and prostrate yourself before the sun, or you would blow the sun kisses. I love you, sun. You come up every day, you give us light, you give us warmth, you give us a means to grow our crops, you're beautiful. So this is a means which Job is saying that the people around him, people near in Egypt are doing this because they can't touch the sun. So they're giving it uh, love, affection, worship by blowing it kisses. And just right the way through, uh, everything coming up through, really, um, to blowing kisses. I mean, blowing kisses is an easy thing, isn't it? But that goes back to this time. So there's a lot of pagan things that come through from uh, years and years ago. If you, if you get married and you, you wear a bridal veil, then that is so, going back in pagan times, that the spirits wanted to get you because you were a bride. But if you had a veil on, they wouldn't know who you were and all the bridesmaids had to wear the same dresses and the same veils so that the spirits wouldn't know who the bride was halloween we know if you yawn and you put your hand in front of your mouth it just goes back to people that put their hand in front of their mouth because the spirits won't go down their throat when they yawned all these things come from way back right into this time and blowing kisses has come right the way through to this time. I mean, we do it in jest now. We, we, we're, it's just how it is. It's a normal, everyday thing. But a lot of things go back into, into pagan times. And coming up through um, the whole history, not only with this with Job, because, I mean, as we, we've already heard, Job is this great man of God. Job is this man who uh, has this integrity. And Job here is saying, look, I know this is happening around me, but I worship the one true God. And in worshiping the one true God, he's just dissing all of the people around him who are worshiping the sun. But Unfortunately, some worship has come right the way up through the centuries. And it's come up through the, the Aztecs, it's come up through Native Americans on the plains in America, they, they do a sun dance, and it's come into this country at Stonehenge. Because every solstice at Stonehenge, the people go to Stonehenge and they welcome the sun back from its wanderings and they say, welcome back, sun. We've got the heat, we've got the light and the crops are going to grow now and the druids still carry out what the worship was 5,000 years ago at Stonehenge. So all of this has come right through. The Japanese flag has got the sun on it because once Japan worshipped the sun so it's a really big thing even into uh, this day what I want to do now is to um, just give you some information on just how and this might surprise you just how the people in the time of Manasseh worshipped the Sun we know about the uh, Canaanite gods that they worshipped we know all about that but listen to this from uh, two kings And uh, chapter 23 and verse 11. And this is talking of Josiah. Josiah is on the throne now. And uh, Josiah is the second king after Manasseh. So you've got Manasseh, Amon, and then you've got Josiah. And Josiah finds the Book of the Law in the temple. And he breaks down the altars, the high altars. He's breaking down all of the idols. And this is what he comes across. He desecrated Topeth, which was in the valley of ben Himmon. This is talking about Josiah, so no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire of Moloch. He removed from the entrance of the temple of the Lord the horses the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan Malach. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. And what this means is it Manasseh had set up this chariot and his horses in the temple. And what the people believed, and this is is not the people of Judah, this is the people with the countries all around. They believed that the sun rode in a chariot pulled by four white horses. So Manasseh had set this up in the temple in Jerusalem to worship the sun. And then if we go to Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 16, What has happened is here is that Josiah has been killed in battle. Nebuchadnezzar has come to Jerusalem. He's taken the first batch of the people of Judah away to exile in Babylon. And in that first batch is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel now is speaking in the sixth year of his exile in Babylon. And what has happened is that Ezekiel has been taken up into what you might call a third heaven by the lord and shown visions of what is happening in jerusalem and apostasy after apostasy is happening in jerusalem the people have gone back to the ways of messiah of manasseh after uh, the death of jerusalem. and then ezekiel this is uh, this is what ezekiel sees he then this is the lord he then brought me into the inner court of the house of the lord and there, at the entrance to the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were bowing down to the sun in the east. So they've gone back to worshiping the sun, and by bowing down to the east, that means that the sun is coming up over uh, the big hill behind uh, the big hill behind Jerusalem which is Mount of Olives. (laughs) Right, come on. So so they're they're, they're in the temple and they're bowing down to the east and so the sun's coming up over the Mount of Olives. And so this worship is going on even after Josiah has cleared the temple originally of all the idols. Now the next thing about this really, and this is tragic, is during the time that this was happening it was a time of uh, Jeho- Jeho- Jehoahaz, Jehoakim, Jehoachin, and Zedekiah, And those kings came after Josiah in quick order, maybe about 23, 24 years. And during that time, Jeremiah was prophesying to these people in Jerusalem right through that time. And they took no notice of him. They still worshiped the sun gods. They still worshiped all the other gods they are put in a temple. And at the end of that time, in the time of Zedekiah, then the Babylonians come and completely wreck Jerusalem and burn the temple down. Even though they never, ever listened to Jeremiah. And that is tragic. And that's the end of Judah. It's the end of the, the whole thing. They get taken away to, to Babylon. And so some worship coming right through from the days of Job, and coming through to the days of Judah, and coming right through the time now to Stonehenge. Um, The whole thing is tragic. Um, But now when you blow kisses, you know what's happening.
0: I'm not putting my hand in front of my mouth when I yawn anymore, and I don't care if you think it's rude, because I'm not being... Partake. I'm not partaking in a pagan practice. <laughs> oh, that was interesting, Dan. That was interesting. Um, all right, cool. Question four is for Chris, I think. Um, Proverbs 10, verse one. Why does the wise son not bring joy to both his parents, and why does the foolish son
2: only bring grief to his mother? It's oh, such a niche question, so congratulations to whoever wrote it. It's really good. Um, yeah, just quickly... Uh, Proverbs ten one says, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. So the implication is that, um, you know, the son makes the father glad because he's wise, but only affects the mother um, when he is unwise. Um, And, you know, I was just, you know, I'm not going to lie to you, I've never looked into this uh or shown any interest in it um but i, d- I did obviously because I needed to answer the question so um yeah on on one hand you i suppose the argument is that um given given the time of writing that um y- you know well and also given who's, who solomon is and given that his father was David the great the great king great servant of God that perhaps is an assumption that wisdom and given solomon's wisdom as we all know is linked to sort of the pride of the king you know the father who is who is also the king um and you know there are some some people have written that you know may, maybe also in the time women were seen as you know being close to their emotions and blah blah blah, blah. but to be honest with you I don't I don't agree um, firstly, out of personal experience, because I can say with great assurance that my sorrow, Poppy and Johnty's lack of wisdom is just as great as Nick's, <laughs> um, if not greater, and I don't feel any greater gladness at their wisdom than than Nick, either. So, um, I, I would say, and there's not nothing to necessarily back this up, but but I would say that it's it's. Not coincidence, but that the mother and father are just coupled there as as, as a package, and they both experience both sides of the coin. But it's just laid out in in that sort of poetic way. It happen. It happens throughout um, Proverbs. So, just going to read a few few for, you, for your interest. So, chapter fifteen, verse twenty. Pretty much the same. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. 17.25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Um, 23.25. May your father and mother be glad, and may she who gave you birth rejoice. It's so slightly different there. Um, and then 30.17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley. That's my favorite one. Um, but interesting, isn't it, that in that last one, in fact, the last two, they're separated, but they're about the same thing. So they're both they're, they're both about, um, this last one is about negative. So the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother, it's the same problem, but they're, they're still separated. Uh, they're still separated out. And also interesting that um, again with with chapter seventeen verse twenty five a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. So again they're separated out, but they're both about feelings of negativity. And then conversely, in chapter twenty five verse sorry, chapter twenty three verse twenty five, may your father and mother be glad. Again, they're separated out slightly rather than your parents will be glad. But again, they're both about gladness. In fact, the last bit of that that verse is, may she who gave you birth rejoice. So to argue that it's simply the mother f- gets sort of overexcited in, in a negative way when a son is unwise and the father is the one who experiences the great gladness, I, I think those those... Verses demonstrate that that's not the case, but it's more about a, a sort of maybe some sort of poetic tool where the mother and father have separated out, but there's still a jointness in what they experience.
0: Great. Okay. Um, next question is Proverbs ten twenty six. What is a sluggard? Uh, my phone is just. There we go, yeah it's it's being a sluggard, yeah it's uh and I just wanna read to you from so proverbs ten twenty six here we go, so proverbs ten twenty six in the n i v says this uh as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, neither of which sounds very lovely, um, as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so are sluggards to those who send them. Um, this is how it reads in the uh, in the interlinear, so in the, in the Hebrew, but in English. It says, as vinegar to the teeth, ooh, as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy man to those who send him. So uh, sluggard, basically, uh, in Hebrew, is the word atzel, Um uh, and it just means a lazy person um so uh if you type sluggard into Google, it tells you that a sluggard is a sluggish person or someone who's lazy yeah 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 so that's it that's my answer what's a sluggard a lazy person what gosh that's it i am i am done you want you want me to you want me to, it is a sluggish answer it's like <laughs> There we go. All right. Uh, question six, then, is Ecclesiastes 7, verse 3. Why is sorrow better than laughter? And uh, why is a sad face really, and is a sad face, really good for the heart?
1: Um, never quickly, because it's a, um, it's a proverb. Uh, just give you a moment to get there. Uh, <coughs> Ecclesiastes, roundabout songs. Come on, Cheryl, get your act together. Okay, just going to read it out. Restoration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. Um, Here is Solomon. He's near the end of his life, he died in 931. I'm so sorry. Here is Solomon. Here's Solomon, he he's dies in 931 B.C. And people put this round about four years before he died, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes. So he's got all these things that you can look back on and all the things that he's saying, life is meaningless. And as regards to this proverb, I think, um, looking around, we're all of a certain age here, uh, bar one or two. Uh, So, we have all, in some ways, uh, been through um, some tough times, I guess, and uh, tough times have come upon us, and what the proverb means really is, when tough times come upon us, that's the times we learn about the Lord, and I I throw this back to your mind, and you can think this out for yourself. In tough times, this is when you are close to God. You've got to go into God, you've got to read the Bible, you've got to pray, and you've got to listen to God. When you're partying, you don't know much about God. There's nothing wrong with partying because uh, Jesus partied. But the times that you learn about God is when you've got a sad face. The times when you learn about God is when you're Frustrated, your heart is sad. And because this is just a short answer, really, I'm just going to tell you um, a bit about myself in this. In my early 30s, um, I had a really tough time. Um, some big things came along. And who knows what way, um, I might have been more frivolous in life if I didn't do this. I might have been more. Um, Not so much church life if I didn't do this, but every Saturday afternoon, I used to go up to ECL, which is a bookshop in uh, Park Street in those days. and I used to buy a book every Saturday. And I read through the early church, um, Iona, uh, St. Cuthbert, St. Aidan, and just came on up through the Reformation, um, Zwingel, Luther, Calvin, John Knox, and then up through George Whitfield, not Wesley. Wesley's on the other side of the fence. And then I just come up through C.H. Spurgeon, um, probably read over 400 Spurgeon sermons, and then come into Martin Lloyd-Jones, and then into the current uh, charismatic movement. And if I hadn't done that, then I probably wouldn't um, be called to answer questions here, or I wouldn't know so much. Um, in my own life about the Bible. So the bad things and the sad things, although they're bad and sad, can help you along the road of life and can um, make you think different in life and can build you up in the ways of the Lord because he will come and help you in those sad times of bad times and sad faces. And really, I'm, I'm Probably all bar about three people here. I'm probably speaking to the converted on this. You, you, you know where I'm coming from. So, um, I think that's the meaning behind this proverb.
0: That's cool. I wondered when I saw the question. I thought, I wonder where he's going to take that. And that was good. I like that. I guess it's only when you go through something really difficult that you discover, kind of. The depths of God's provision or His strength or His—do you know what I mean? You, it, yeah, you know that, but when you go through it, you know it, don't you? You're like, yeah, on a different level. That's that's cool. Love that. All right then. Question seven. Colossians one verse fifteen. What does it mean that Christ is the firstborn over all creation? I'd like to read Colossians one. Because my last one was so short, I think I've got extra time on this one, is that? No, no, Ah, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, So um, I'd like to read Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, if that's okay. Um, But the question's about that first verse, verse 15. So here we go. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So obviously we're talking about Jesus here, um, the Son, and um, I wanted to read that whole thing because I think when you read that whole thing, uh, that whole section, I think it answers the question. Um, So, so what does it mean that he's the firstborn? Well, first up, I, I, think, I think it means a number of things. I'm going to just throw a few things out there. You can take them all or take one that you think it means. But I think, it, I think it is, this language is used to imply a number of things. Um, and I think when you read Scripture, you'll discover that in lots of places, Scripture is layered. So like we were talking earlier on about Genesis 1 and God creating physically, but actually, if you dis, you start unpacking the Hebrew Scriptures, you discover that there's a spiritual creation narrative in there as well. So it's, it's multi-layered. There's all kinds of things going on. And you'll, you'll find that across the Scriptures in general. Um, so the first thing, I think, is that firstborn, I, I think that he's the first one resurrected into the new creation. He is the firstborn born into the new creation. We know that with Jesus' resurrection, it was the inauguration of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And it hasn't fully come yet, but it has begun. And do you remember, I bang on about sevens all the time when I'm preaching. And in John's gospel, there are seven signs, which is symbolic, we know, because John, right at the beginning, John says, in the beginning was the word. He's, He's taking you back to Genesis, the seven days of creation. But then the resurrection is the eighth Sign so if you 've got an eighth day in a week you 've got the first day of the new week, this is the new creation, and on the resurrection he 's standing in a garden and it gets confused as the gardener like this is God in the garden, bringing forth new creation, the resurrection is the firstborn from among the dead, and he that 's our hope that we too will be raised up and born into that new creation, right? into that, that resurrected body when heaven and earth is made new and he comes again. Um, so I think first up, and we see, it, we see it here, don't we, that it says in verse 18, uh, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So literally, he's the firstborn. He's the, the first raised up into the new creation. Um, I think we talked about this before as well when we had that question about... Um, what happened to um, Elijah? Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah, when he whisked up. And I, I said that actually I didn't think he was taken into heaven because Jesus is the only human currently in heaven, so to speak. And we talked a bit about that. So he's the first born into that, raised up, resurrected. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I think the language of firstborn is really, really interesting uh, because if, bear in mind that. Paul, who's writing Colossians, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He is as Jewish as it gets. So he's got all of this Jewish history and story in his mind. And when he writes, his language is intentional and it's pointing back to this story uh, that Jesus is fulfilling and taking on to its conclusion. And so when he talks about Jesus as the firstborn, that's language about the firstborn son. And the firstborn son had all the rights everything was given to the firstborn son. So when the father died, uh, and a will was enacted, the firstborn son inherited everything. And so you see here that when we read that uh, all things hold together in him. He's the head of the estate. He's the one that it's all going to be uh, belong to and it's all going to hold together in him. He's the firstborn son. He's the firstborn over all creation. And when 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 it's all done with um and and new heavens and new earth and all that stuff comes, the, the new creation, it's all going to be his, and it's all under him, and he's the firstborn over it. Does that make sense? He's got the rights of the firstborn son. It all belongs to him. Um, thirdly, then, and this is my, my last one, um, if you go and look at the Greek word, you can look it up on the Interlinear Bible, <laughs> uh, if you look at the Greek word for firstborn, uh, it is the word, have I written it down? Oh, I think I've got it open in a tab. Hang on. It is... The word uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this properly, but in Greek, protokos, uh, prototokos, something like that. Okay, um, and it's made up of two words: uh, protos, which means first or preeminent, and tiktou, tiktou, which means to bring forth. Okay, so it's two words. It means uh, it means to bring the the first to bring forth. Do you see that? So. When it tells us that all things were made through him, he is the one who has brought, he's the word that was at the beginning. He brought everything forth. All things were made through him, by him, and for him. So so he is the firstborn in the sense that everything has come through him. He is the firstborn in the sense that he is the firstborn son and everything holds together in him. He's over the estate and he is the firstborn from among the dead because he is the firstborn into the new creation and we too will be raised up into it. Does that make sense? So I think there's a a multi-pronged layering going on here of what he means when he means firstborn, but I think it it means at least some of that, if not all of that. And Jesus is all of that. Is that okay? Great. All right. Question eight. Colossians one twenty. By all things, does this mean that everyone will be saved? then.
1: Yeah. Um, big question, really. Um, when I, um, what I think we we'll do here is because there's uh, some deep theology behind this, if you really go into it, then I think What I need to do is rhetorically put the question over to you. Uh, So what I mean by that is that I'm going to throw some things out. They might not necessarily be all the things that I think are right, but I'm going to throw some things out to you, and I want you to think through what I'm saying, and to think, yeah, I get that, or yeah, I've learned from that, or yeah, I've changed my view on that, Whatever which way, I'm just going to bring these things out. Uh, and, and I want you to have a think about it. So it's not me answering the question. It's you answering the question yourselves. Uh, I've just got to change my glasses. Otherwise, I won't be able to see what I'm doing. And With this, um, with this thing about, uh, is everybody going to heaven? What it's called is universalism. So I'll be using that term. It just means, is everybody going to heaven? They're all going to heaven. Unfortunately, in the world at the moment, uh, particularly in the uh, Southern Baptist Churches of America, this ideal is catching hold. That God is so good that he would not let anybody go to hell. Now, we know that God is so good but we also know that there's a hell so everybody everybody says that this is how it is God is love nothing is going to happen well what we say is who do you or do I think this way if I say that I choose God then that means to say that I have chosen God, and that means to say that if I have chosen God, then I can fall away from God, because one thing follows the other. So some people would say that if someone falls away, then they were never a Christian in the first place. Because if you take the parable, of the sowing of the seeds. Some fell on stony ground, some grew up and withered away, and some came to full fruition. If we think that God chose us, then if God chose us, no one's going to fall away, because God would not let anyone fall away. Some people would say that God is a father over all. But if God is a father over all, then why does Jesus say at the end times, Go away, I've never known you? He don't say, I knew you. He says, I never knew you. And another 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 verse is John chapter 16, 1 to 3. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of synagogues. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They would do such things because they have not known the Father or me. So in this verse, it's actually saying that these people have fallen away, have not known the, the Father. So, there's, so that breaks down universalism. Universalism can't happen from these verses in the Bible. And the same, which once I've already said, John chapter 8, verse 19, then they ask him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father. So everyone it says that the father knows everybody in a way. He knows everybody on earth, but he's not in the way that these people are taking it in universalism. Because Jesus says here, if you knew me, you would know my Father. So therefore, you don't know me, so you don't know my Father. Not everyone, and this is Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven Uh, 2013, this is what Pope Francis said. In an open letter to a newspaper editor, he said, that sincere atheists will be accepted by God. The Pope said, you ask me if the God of the Christian forgives those who don't believe and who don't seek the faith. I start by saying, and this is the fundamental thing, that God does have mercy as no limits. If you go to him with a sincere and contrite heart, the issue for those who do not believe in God is to obey their conscience. And what's come into the Roman Catholic Church through Pope Francis is universalism. And to get universalism across the world so that everyone, and all the churches and all the denominations within the churches across the world coming together is a form of what the antichrist will want eventually because the antichrist will want a one money one monetary system he want one government system he want a one worship system to him and what we have to do is to know our bible and to stand against anything like this um, as far as we can coming into being and the watering down of the gospel. Now, I want to uh, read you this, because um, you still might have an answer. Well, did not Jesus say that he wants everyone to come into the kingdom? Yeah. Let me read you this. And um, before I do, I just got this note at the top here. It says, Universal, universalism teaches that God saves everyone. What universalism doesn't say and what the people who pronounce and talk about universalism don't say is, and they don't ask the question, does everybody want to go to heaven? So they're saying everybody's going to heaven. Does Hitler want to go to heaven? Does Guinness Khan want to go to heaven? Have you come across anyone in your life who've ever said to you, I want to go to hell because it's more fun? You've probably heard that. So not everybody wants to go to heaven, but the universalists are saying everybody's going to heaven. But they have to take that into account. Now, just um, listen to this. What does it mean, then, for God to desire, or will, that all people be saved? Some interpreters hold that even though God wants something to happen, he does not necessarily make it happen. He gives people free will to decide whether to pursue his will for them so there is contingency in God's plan for the world. His will is contingent on the free will of sinners even though this is is a widely held view, it is most likely not what Paul means to say. The key to understanding this is to see that the Bible speaks of God's will, desire, in two different ways. On the one hand, God has provided will that cannot be violated. On the other hand, he has a moral will that can be violated. God's providential will refers to his sovereign plan for the world and for all of our lives. When Paul says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, he is referring to God's providential will that cannot be broken. This is also what Paul is referring to in Romans 8.28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, in this sense, we cannot know what God wills until it happens. It is not revealed in the Bible, yet holds in history. His providential will is largely a secret to us. We can know it only in retrospect. God's moral will refers to his holiness and goodness. His moral will is reflected in his commands. You shall not murder, you shall not steal. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. These commands express God's moral will, and human beings can defy God's moral will. In fact, this is what sin is, defiance of God's will, as revealed in Scripture. When Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, he is referring to God's moral will, and people break that all the time. <clears throat> Thus scripture can refer to God's will in two ways, depending on the context. This is why Isaiah is able to prophesy about Jesus' death. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Does this mean that it pleased God to for the Roman soldiers to kill Jesus? No, of course not. In doing so, they were sinning. They were defying God's moral will. So in what sense was it God's will that Jesus should be killed? It was God's providential will and plan that his son should die for sinners. So when Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.4 that God desires or wills for all people to be saved, to what is he referring? God's providential will or his moral will. He is referring to God's moral purpose that all men everywhere should repent and be saved, yes. It is God's moral will that all be saved, but it is not his providential will that all be saved. Salvation will come only to all people who believe. So then, what is Paul's point in saying that it is God's will for all to be saved? God has given his people the gospel to take to all nations. God's will for every person on the planet is for him or her to repent and believe in the gospel. Some by grace will respond and some will not respond. God's people cannot know in advance who is going to respond to this message and who is not. God's people are to pray and to preach to everyone concerning God's will for them, that they should repent, believe, and be saved. The results of that witness are left to God. God desires all people to be saved, and these verses explain that there is only one way for them to be saved. There is only one God, and this means that there is only one plan of salvation, His plan. God has appointed his son Jesus to be a mediator between himself and sinners. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead in order to heal the breach between a holy God and sinful man. In this way, the man, Jesus Christ, effects reconciliation between God and mankind. Who gave himself means that no one took Jesus' life away from him. On the contrary, Jesus offered himself freely on the cross as a ransom meaning that he died in the place of sinners to pay the price owed by them for their sins. This statement is likely a variation on Jesus' words concerning his death as a ransom. The ransom price was a penalty of death. Sin deserves judgment, and Jesus took that judgment upon himself when he died on the cross. By his death, he provides forgiveness for sins. By his resurrection, he offers eternal life. He is a ransom for all. This ransom, however, is effective only for those who believe in Christ. Nevertheless, the giving himself for all is a testimony given at the proper time. The testimony in view here most likely refers to testimony that serves as proof such as in a court order. No doubt God is the one giving a testimony. In this sense, Christ's ransoming work is God's proof that Christ has given himself On behalf of sinners so um, that's just something for you to think about and really a last thing for you to um, think about it in this verse it talks about reconciliation and through to and through him to reconcile himself to all things through Jesus to reconcile himself to all things the reconciling does not come from man the reconciling is the work of the cross and reconciling is a reconciling blood of jesus because when adam first was uh, came to the earth was first made and came to the earth jesus walked with adam in in the garden of eden when adam uh did wrong and adam was taking out the garden of eden then he was not reconciled to god so it's not man that can reconcile himself to god It's God through the work and the blood of Jesus Christ that reconciles himself to man. So if your neighbor pops his head over the door and he says, I have just chose God and I am reconciled to him, you know he's wrong. Because he cannot be reconciled to God in that way. Now I know Matt is crushing his head down a little bit um, but um, he had his go this morning so i got two minutes now <laughs> so the reconciliation doesn't come from man so man can't just say um, everything is okay and universalism is fine because it's Jesus that does the reconciling and has done the reconciling work so I guess we know at the start that universalism is wrong Um, but to some extent we need to hold that and we need to hold the Bible verses, we need to hold who we are in Christ so that we can refute anyone who says that universalism is right. I mean, it's it's plainly obvious to us but it's not plainly obvious to a lot of churches that it's coming into in this day and age. That's cool. Um,
0: Just to come back to the question and pick up some stuff from here if that's all right bouncing off what den said when it says by all things does this mean everyone will be saved so i absolutely agree with den no they won't um so but just to kind of look at this and what, what does that mean all things um i was just thinking about that while den was talking because it says plainly doesn't it that through him to reconcile to himself all things so why would all, thing, all people not be saved? And, and I was just thinking, you know, we were talking a moment ago about Jesus being the firstborn, having the the, the rights of the firstborn son, so that when everything gets passed to him, it, it, he is over it all. So I was just thinking about how th- through what Jesus has done, uh, everything has been reconciled to him. So, so yeah, everyone, those who know him, those who don't. The whole of planet Earth, the whole of creation, right now, planet Earth, if you like, is is living, like Den was saying, since Adam is living, fallen away from him. But through what he's done on the cross, his death and resurrection, all things are being reconciled to him. And so I, I was thinking about it like this. At some point when my mum pops her clogs, <coughs> in many, many, many years from now, anything that she has, which... I'm not sure how much there is left anymore, but anything that she has, if we, if we, if we, if we were living back in ancient kind of Israelite times, anything she would have would come to me as the firstborn. Sadly, I probably have to share it all now with my brother and my sister, and I'm not quite sure what that means will be left. But, um, but it would, it would be reconciled. Everything that she had would be reconciled to me. Now, at that point, I would sit there and I would go through all of her. CD collection and think, well, we don't have CD players anymore, so I'll put that in the bin. Uh, Oh, okay, yeah, that, I I want that, I'll keep that. That, I'll put here. That, I'll give to them. Does that make sense? Just because it's it's been reconciled to me, it now means it's under my control, and I can decide what to do with it. So I don't think that what that verse means is that through Jesus, everyone is saved. I think that through what Jesus has done, everything is reconciled to him, and then he, as judge over it, can say, yeah, no. Does that make sense? I, I think that's kind of what, what that says. I, I don't think that means everything is saved. I think it means all creation is being brought back under his authority, and as king and judge and lord, he will then judge the living and the dead, and he will do what he's going to do. And Does that make sense? Cool. All right, I think we're on to the last question. Question 9, Colossians 1, Does this mean that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't enough that Paul found Christ's
2: afflictions lacking? It's a really good question. I'm just now thinking, I've got this image of Jesus sorting through old Robbie Williams CDs, (laughs) casting them into hell, will they never be seen again? Not that I'm yeah, anyway. Um, Yeah, so great question. Really, really good question. Obviously, all the questions are good. But um, So let's read that verse. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings, that's Paul, For your sake, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So upon first reading, it would seem that what Paul is saying is that my afflictions, my sufferings, are essentially, on behalf of the church, making up for what Jesus' sufferings could not do. That's wild, isn't it? What's going on here, Paul? um now i'm just going to i'm i'm just going to um suggest one explanation um because i think it is the best explanation from what i read around it but i no doubt there're other there are other ones but let let's be let's just be clear and it's helpful that den's just talked through verse 20 um that this is that i believe paul is not referring to the sufficiency of Christ's death and suffering in terms of his saving power. But he's talking about something slightly different, which, which we'll come to in a second. But you only really have to read the verses that come before it to be sure that that's the case. Because as we've just read and heard, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in other words, his blood shed on the cross, as Den's already said, has enabled all things to be reconciled to himself, as Matt was just saying. So there's no way you can read that and then think that what Paul is saying is, oh, but it just wasn't quite enough. You know, Jesus died on the cross and is now Lord of all things, humans, the whole of creation, the whole of the universe and beyond, but it just wasn't quite enough. That's not what he's saying. So, and then just just to really underline that, verse 21, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. You know, only Jesus' death and resurrection could do that. And it's interesting that he is not just talking about, oh, Jesus has reconciled all things, Jesus has made you holy and blameless. In both of those verses, it's by his blood, by the cross, and by his death. So he's underlining the, the suffering that Jesus took on in order to bring about those things. So that just really underlines it for a first thing. But anyway, why does he then go on to talk about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, Firstly, I just thought, well, let's just double-check that word, lacking. And to be fair, it, it it basically, yes, could could be translated as lacking, shortcoming, or insufficient. So that still gives off the impression, okay, Paul's saying that there's something missing here. But here's, here's the thing that I, I thought was quite compelling. If you just turn back to Philippians, chapter 2, firstly, verses 24. 5 I'll just read a few verses. This is obviously Paul again writing to the church. He says this. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's the same, it's the same concept, it's the same word, lacking. But it's, it's even more than that. He's talking about this completing what was lacking in the same way that he talks about his own suffering, completing what was lacking in Christ's suffering on behalf of the church. Here he's talking about this guy, Epaphroditus, that something that he did was completing what the church of Philippi couldn't do. And again, you might think, well, he's just slagging off the Philippians. Probably not a great tactic to use if you're writing to those people. Anyway, let's, let's just move on to um, chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 18 which says, or I'll read around it. Um, so a couple of verses back. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So, this, in other words, Paul is saying, this amazing gift I didn't ask for, but you met my needs, and he describes it as, he describes himself as being well supplied, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, so not only is this gift good for me, you know, by my standards it's good, it's a gift that I could imagine, you know, God being pleased by. So Paul's not saying here, here forget about it, um, Paul's not saying here that the, the Epaphroditus is, is sort of making up for your lacking. What, what he's saying is that you sent this man to me and brought me a gift therefore completing what you couldn't couldn't do, which is essentially, you couldn't all come to see me to bring me the gift. So you sent me a messenger to do it, and it was an amazing gift. So going back to um, Colossians 1.24, my view anyway is in that context, what Paul is not saying is, Christ suffered and did all this great stuff, but it there was something missing which I'm fulfilling. What he's saying is, Christ is in the flesh, is not here. And you, people of Colossae, did not see Christ's suffering. I didn't see it. We did not see Jesus on the cross. We didn't see him being beaten, abused, his body laid on a cross, you know, and all of the suffering that Jesus went through. And so, therefore, my suffering, the things that you hear about, you read about, the things that people can plainly see around you, is completing it. Does that make sense? It's showing you what you didn't see in Jesus in the flesh. Does that make sense? In the same way that Epaphroditus completed, I represented the people of Philippi by bringing the gift, I am representing Jesus' suffering in the way that you've never seen before. That's 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 my view on it anyway. And I have stolen that from somebody. I'm not going to pretend I've just made that up. That's cool, mate. Love that. I was just thinking,
0: I'm not quite sure where it is, but in one or two Peter, I remember reading Peter kind of saying to the church about their suffering. He says, like, um, that, Like almost like he's encouraging them to to keep going, isn't he? We talked about this morning. He's encouraging to keep going because like Christ suffered for them, and also then they're almost like being an example to the people around them of what Christ is. Does that make sense? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm, Cool, love that. Right, guys, we are nearly done. It's just your turn, so we'll just take maybe three three or four minutes. um, You can have a look at this one. Question ten: Ecclesiastes chapter ten, verse nineteen. How can money be the answer to everything when it is said to be the root of all evil? So, Ecclesiastes 10, verse 19. um, How can money be the answer to everything when it is said to be the root of all evil? Ecclesiastes 10, verse 19 says this A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. (laughs) Um, So, I think you wanna get into maybe kind of two or three groups and um, have a little chat for kind of a few minutes and then we'll we'll feedback and we'll wrap up with your answers and see see what you think, is that okay? Cool. Just in case you guys were wondering about the money being the root of all evil thing, uh, that's in 1 Timothy. Uh, chapter 6, verse 10. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Griefs. So that's 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All right, I'm going to start with you guys. We'll go this way.
3: First of all, I said, maybe it's just a throwaway line. <laughs> oh, you guys, you know, the love of money is the, you know, the money is the root for Um But then we looked a little bit deeper and we thought that in what he was talking about in Ecclesiastes, about everything being meaningless and life without God. Well, okay, money is the answer to it all, you know. Maybe it was a kind of a a line. Okay, if you're not going to have God, then money is the answer to it all. But, you know, rather you had God.
0: (laughs) That kind of It's a bit like we looked at when we were in Ecclesiastes the other Sunday, and we said that, um, like, I don't necessarily read Ecclesiastes in in the way that everything you read is like, this is, it's not like God speaking. This is a, a king who's old, who's looking back on his life and he's been king of his own kingdom, and, and actually some of what he says, you're like, oh, actually, you, you know, kind of without God, yeah, but actually that isn't the, yeah, so, yeah, totally, get that, love that. Um, he's speaking for you guys. Anyone?
3: Um, I think the only, the kind of one thing that we sort of said is that that's the kind of saying the way the world looks at things, There's that if we had more money, then we could fix it. It's kind of like just with the NHS recently, they, there's all the talk of, well, if, if there was more money, then we could do all this stuff and we could fix it. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, so we maybe it was that.
0: So contrasting that to the verse about money being the root of evil is is the love. So if you are loving money, but if you have a love for other things, like for wanting to heal people, Actually, if we had enough money, we could throw stuff at this, and it might help with that. Like, yeah, that's cool. Okay, cool. You guys. Alright, alright.
4: Um, yeah, we said this, the same sort of thing, really. That um, like I said about that, Timothy verse, the love of money. But um, yeah, like if you if you got money and you use it wisely, then then that's good. Um. But you can have money, and um, it can produce evil in you because the more money you've got, some people, the more you want. And you're frightened. Barbara said, you're frightened you're going to lose it. Um, So, yeah, and what we just sort of said when we were in Kenya, our, our, our kids had nothing, but when we paid for them to go to school, my goodness, were they ever so happy. And that was only by giving them an education. So, you know, Small, that isn't a small thing, but even, you know, that they could have food every day made them happy. And we expect, you know, so much, don't we? Um, So, yeah, we sort of said that was the sort of thing we sort of spoke around.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think everything on planet Earth is here because God has given it in some way, shape, or form, right? And everything can be both used for good or for evil, right? So, um, yeah, so I, I think it's not that money is bad, but but the love of it and the obsession with it, like with anything, if you're obsessed with McDonald's and you eat it every single day, you're going to get ill and die, you know? So um, Chris and I were just talking, we, we, I looked up the Hebrew, and the Hebrew reads like this for verse 19. It says, For laughter is made a feast. And wine makes merry, but money answers everything and I thought, oh, that's an interesting way of wording it. Money answers everything almost as if like money has an answer for everything like which could be true if you if you chuck enough money at something you know you could and Chris and I were talking and saying that um I need my english Bible now uh, if you yeah if you're sad. If you're anything like me, if you get a little bit down and you're a bit sad, what do you do? I comfort eat. Did anybody else do that? I'm feeling a bit rubbish today. I'm going to go and buy a big share bag of Maltesers and eat them to myself. and Or crisps and chocolate and, you know, a feast. So it, to, to cheer myself, I'm going to eat a feast, you know. Um, wine makes merry. Yeah, yeah. But again, like, oh, you're feeling down. Have a couple of drinks and cheer yourself up. In, in, in moderation and little things, none of these things are bad. It's just a statement, isn't it? Eating can bring laughter. Wine can make you merry. And money, yeah, it can. But also overeating can cause you health issues. So all these things are good but can be bad. Like so, um, And money is, is an answer for everything. So oh, I've, I've got a problem. What should I do? Chuck money at it. Like, does that make sense? I think it's just a, it's just a statement, isn't it? It's just when I look at stuff, I see sometimes people are sad. They feast. Let's have a feast. Get everyone together. Eat some food. Cheer them up. We've got a problem. Let's chuck some money at it. Like, I, I think it's just. I don't think that it's like this is the word of the Lord saying. The church needs. I mean, the church could do with more money, but it's not. It's, do you know what I mean? We could do with more faith. It's not saying, "Oh, okay, you've got you've got some problems." What you need is money. It's just this is just Solomon in his old age, kind of looking at life, looking at the world, and going, "Yep, these are some things that I've seen." And actually, he gets to the end of it and goes, "It's all a bit meaningless, isn't it? Without God, like so, yeah, cool. All right. Um, do you want to pray for us, Glenis? Is that right?"
1: Great.
0: <laughs> oh,
3: Father, we just thank you for this evening. And um, yeah, for the way that you enable us to sort of get to grips with these knotty things that come up. And I just thank you for Matt and for Chris and for Dan who, who, who put time in to help us to understand your word. But Lord, we just pray that Uh, day by day, as we read it ourselves, that your Holy Spirit will just open the eyes of our understanding and that, Lord, as we take in your word, that we will become more like you and that as we go out into our world, as we become more like you, we will carry the presence of Jesus with us. And that's what we ask for this coming week, Lord, that wherever we go, whatever we do, that we will carry the presence of Jesus with us because it's in your name we ask it. Amen.